August 22nd, 2019. We sat next to each other on the blue-greenish plastic bench that overlooked the tennis courts. The bench where we had already started compounding hours together, speaking about music, family, friends, and aspirations. The bench where we would spend so many more hours together, sometimes sharing lunch, laughs, and that one kiss my homegirls pulled me to the bathroom about when I finally had to tell them we were dating. On that particular day, we'd just gotten back from the Italian restaurant in the shopping center next to our school. It was around 4 p.m., and our parents were set to arrive anytime soon. We didn't make much eye contact. Instead, we stared into the endless piece of land that lay empty behind the school's premises. It was just as empty as the road that lay ahead of us for the next year or so. Endlessly fertile and boundless in its possibilities. I really enjoy your company, he said. I really enjoy your company too. So, what do you think we should do about it? He replied. Is this your way of shooting your shot? I turned and asked him, finally looking him in the eyes, more out of curiosity than courage. I never said anything about shooting my shot, he smiled, with that smile that seemed to draw me deeper each time I saw it. Then I got a call from my dad, telling me that he was in the parking lot, and we made our way past the beige admin building, side by side, takeaways in hand, trying not to look suspicious. His uncle was also waiting for him, and I later came to learn that from there onwards, both his uncle and his aunt knew about me, before he even said a word. When I got home that afternoon, I plonked my body on the double bed that takes up most of the space in the smaller bedroom of our cottage. The blue and white covers offered a calm atmosphere for me to sit back and think. I stared at the ceiling and combed through the conversation I had with my friend Ulifile the night before. She had met him once, at a nighttime school event I had invited her to, and for the next two weeks my admirer made for really good conversation between us. The night before this boy and I went out for our lunch at the Italian restaurant, I confided in Ulifile about the internal conflict I was facing. This gentleman had been dropping undeniable hints from the jump. We had countless conversations about relationships and some of our fears and reservations about them. There was one problem, however. I don't date. This is just my brand. It's a brand I've cultivated and perfected for years. Its foundations can be traced to the lack of interest I have in boys generally, other than being mild eye candy from time to time and social experiments. It's rooted in the museums of stories I have in my mind. Those I've heard and seen from friends, sisters, and aunties about boys and men alike. The truth is, I was scared of love. But my demeanor said, I abstain from love, like it's some personality trait. Ayanda, if someone makes you feel, allow them, brah. Allow yourself, Ulifile lectured me over the phone, sometime past midnight. And you don't just go around liking people, so this must be genuine, she added. I don't remember ever being so vulnerable about my feelings, let alone over the phone. I promised her and most importantly myself, that I'd be honest about my feelings the next day and give love a chance. 
I thought back quickly to a TED talk I'd watched about a week before. Because I'm gangster like that. I plan out my life in TED talks. In the short space of 19 minutes, Trillian Small taught me about the link between my brain and my heart. And not just my heart as the kilogram of flesh that relies on electric currents to keep me alive, but my heart is the storage ground for my feelings. Like J. Cole describes it, she painted a picture to me that's vivid enough to cure blindness. The fear of love is a memory recall issue. Our brains are hardwired to protect us. So each time we're faced with an invitation to love, we look back through the file records of our memories. We compare the intentions set before us with the experiences we've had, and out of fear of getting hurt again, or rejected again, or ridiculed again, like we've experienced before, we decline. The solution is to create new memories and to replace the records we currently have. So I floated back down to earth down to the blue and white duvet covers, ready to give my admirer a response. Being the sentimentalist that I am, I sent him a song by Java, a song that had been living rent-free in my mind lately. Confessions. A grown man dusting his lover's heart for fingerprints and taking stock of her intentions. I had to make it clear that I wasn't signing a contract for a heartbreak. In my anxiety and doubt, I took a nap and contemplated my next move even further. See, my goal in 2019 was pretty simple. It was my second last year of high school. With matric on the horizon and new beginnings beckoning from a distance, I wanted to keep my head down, to go relatively unnoticed and chisel a new version of myself from this block of stone that lay before me. And now... This new boy in my school had wormed his way into my life through his slick questions, our mutual friends, and a bond I'd never before experienced or even imagined. A beautiful gift. That's what his name translates to. And in that moment and during that time, that's what he proved to be. August 22nd, 2019. After a nap and a shower, and probably smiles from the both of us, at the cheesiness of conveying messages and materializing feelings through love songs, we exchanged promises. Almost like wedding vows. Promises to be tender and gentle with each other's hearts. This initial sharing of music became prophetic. Sharing music became a love language for us. From OK Malumku Kat to Sade, Black Coffee to Krongbin, a.k.a. Maxwell, Tamia, Jonathan Butler, Liquid Deep. Music was a permanent resident in the atmosphere of our relationship and the guest list to its endless parties on our WhatsApp statuses and private messages was endless. August is the end of winter. The gray space where we begin to decide if it's warm enough to wear shorts and ditch the turtleneck puffer jacket aesthetic. It's the time when we patiently wait for the summer rain to come again, to wash away the dust left behind by winter's bite, to permeate into the earth and bring out new life. It's the time when we wait for the breath of God to substitute the dry air that's filled our lungs for what seemed like an eternity. At least, that's what August in 2019 felt like. About a year before this, in grade 10, My English teacher was the deepest well of wisdom I knew. 
Mrs. Gwertz. Even though I spent most of my time criticizing and hating on English literature and poetry, debating these ideals that 17th century romantics and 19th century poets all seemed to be drunk on. Her jet black hair and high heels made her presence known from the minute she stepped out of her Mercedes SUV, and it mesmerized me. Unknowingly, she planted within me a deep love for poetry, and I treasured some of the lessons she'd shared like the last molecule of oxygen in a gas chamber. The day came when she finally had to teach the most cliché poem in the history of anybody who's been to high school. Sonnet 18. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day, for thou art more lovely and temperate? And typically, the words, Ma'am, do you honestly believe in soulmates? glided off the tongue of this annoying 16-year-old girl in my class, who, like so many other people around me, was filled with so much hope in romance. Children, let me be honest with you. I think we have three soulmates in life. The first person you truly love, a family member or friend that's really close to your heart, and the person you marry. There's no one person set apart for you, but a whole bunch who tabernacle on your heart. These may not be her exact words, but that's how I took it. And it stuck with me, like a universal truth. I'd never cared for soulmates or boys for that 15 years of my life. But later, her words came in handy. And in August of 2019, I'm pretty sure I checked the box for one of my soulmates. Unexpectedly, without warning, no preparations in place, no previous experiences to compare this to. I met the first person I truly loved, much like Mrs. Gwertz described. For my 17th birthday, he got me this silver necklace. There's a hot pendant in the middle, enclosed with little diamonds. After he gave it to me, the act of wearing it each morning felt a bit like a ritual for me. It reminded me of a poem by E.E. E. Cummings, a poem Mrs. Gwertz had taught, a poem I had not understood let alone appreciated when I first heard it. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. And whatever is done by only me is your doing, my darling. I fear no fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. I want no world, for beautiful you are my world, my true. And it's you are whatever a moon has always meant, and whatever a sun will always sing is you. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life which grows higher than soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder 
that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. Love is experiential. It took me placing the small heart pendant on my chest every morning in front of the mirror to know what Cummings was talking about. This feeling of knowing nothing better. A secret that no one else knew. The wonder that was keeping the stars apart. Over the span of a year, we began to stitch together a tapestry of memories. Big and small. We'd spend late afternoons on the multitudes of stairs in our small suburban high school, talking and frolicking around most of the time. Once at the movies, we sat next to a middle-aged couple and we kissed each other while they watched. At times, our love itself felt like a movie. I remember sitting on the wet grass at dawn in October 2019, Amsterdam by FKJ playing in the background, while this beautiful gift lay in my lap, fast asleep. My hands placed gently on the back of his head as the sun rose over my small town. The cold evening drew to a close and the sun began to let down her hair that October morning. Carefully, she painted the sky with gradients of lilac, orange and cling peach pink. The birds carried his name in the biting wind and the morning floated in with June Marisi's voice. And somehow, the cold air found a warmth in it. But here's the thing. When you pray for rain, you need to pray for the strength to deal with the mud too. Relationships teach us a lot more about ourselves than about the other person. The undeniable presence of someone watching your life unfold with you can begin to unearth parts of you. And after some time, after my own unearthing, I came to learn that I have trouble processing my emotions and expressing them, whether good or bad. And when I couldn't translate my feelings into text messages, my Twitter account and my thumbs became close friends, like Green Ring on Instagram close friends. Do not hit me up with that 0.03% energy of yours because I will not respond. Bro, I want to be loved gently. What is this? Best believe I'm going back to my ghosting ways. When people start acting dizzy, flight mode starts working overtime. You'll tire yourself out trying to, quote unquote, fix me. Do the pimples on my forehead spell idiot in braille? Because wow. Twitter was a solace for me. The blue interface of the timeline on dark mode was a place for banter and judgment-free venting. Twitter's feelings wouldn't be hurt by my feelings. Twitter didn't care whether I brought things up two minutes or two weeks after it had happened. Twitter didn't care for my lack of communication skills. I mean, she only gave me 280 characters to work with, so I had to make due. And it was always more than sufficient. My inability to communicate clearly wasn't the only thing putting a strain on us. We always talk about being a part of someone's world as such a glamorous thing, and oftentimes it is. We come to know the little and mundane details that fill the lives of the people that mean the most to us, alongside the major events that shape them into who they are. We learn about their childhood friends, their favorite drinks, their whereabouts and what they're doing on Friday nights, 
and what their cold hands feel like against our necks in winter. But we often forget how ugly this world we're inviting them into can be. We forget how different our world is from theirs. Our world houses trauma, injustices, unchecked expectations, and emotional walls high enough to even make Donald Trump jealous. The excitement of something new can only last so long, and it wasn't too long until I fell back into my existential state of sadness. Without realizing it, I started to withdraw myself. I grew more reserved. And I wore my sadness pretty well. Even he didn't get to see it most of the time. Looking back, I posted something on my Tumblr that summarizes this pretty well. False pretenses. Many faces I come with. For you, only the best ones. Fast forward to October 4th, 2020. We were well over one year into our relationship, and something didn't feel right. Neither of us could explain it. There's a quote by Ben Okri that I heard recently that says, The law is simple. Every experience is repeated or suffered till you experience it properly and fully the first time. We had to experience how different we were and how we wanted different things over and over until we experienced it fully the first time. I don't really know how to explain this, but I've felt this way for a while now. It feels like we're more like friends than we are a couple. And something about it just doesn't sit right with me, he said over Telegram. What about it doesn't sit well with you? I typed back. The way you treat me isn't any different from the way you treat your male friends. I mean, sure, you can tell me stuff, but there isn't much of a difference. I laughed bitterly like I did so often around this time. All this? After we'd had a conversation about how our relationship was not meant to be a show of public theatrics, but a love shared in private, through phone screens, on empty corridors, and on late nights spent falling asleep on phone calls, listening to the other person breathe as you also drifted off to sleep, smiling at this quirk of theirs that only you know. All this after I had performed open-heart surgery on myself to show this boy parts of myself that were even foreign to me? All this after he'd worked his way into my life by starting off as my friend in the first place? So what do you suggest we do? I asked, anxious. My heart was beating like Kanye's fingers on an 808's drum kit machine. I was sweating at 7 a.m. on a raining morning. In the bathtub, my hand stretched out of the tub like Moses parting the seas. I don't know, he responded. You need to let me know what you need so I can decide whether or not I can give that to you. Thing is, I've never had to teach anyone how to love me. The message popped onto my phone screen and butchered me like a yielding lamb. Once a relationship starts feeling like a chore, we need to step back and reevaluate things. If you feel like this relationship is no longer serving its purpose for you, there's no need to force things, I replied. So you mean I can leave if I feel like my needs are not being met? This text message exchange went on a little longer 
and in the end we agreed to call things to a halt, to throw the towel into the boxing ring. He said it would be better off if we remained friends. It wouldn't be much different from what we already had. But I don't do second place, I told him. And either way, our definition of friends totally differed. October 4th, 2020. That was the last time we had a full conversation, excluding the next day at school, when I asked him if there was anything he needed to say, since he felt like having the conversation over text did it no justice. I only cried once, the night that it happened. I cried in bulk, for all the times I physically could not cry before that, for all that I had lost, for all the empty space that lay vacant in my heart. I told my homegirls. Then I gave myself three days to feel everything that I needed to feel. I knew I couldn't wallow in my hurt, but I also had to grieve. It was strange. I went from talking to this one person every single day without fail to speaking to no one at all on some days. There was no one to share my small wins with, no one to ask with genuine curiosity what their day was like. With each day that went by, I began to understand more and more Nina Simone's descent into madness. But I had bigger things to deal with. I had 12 exams with my number on them waiting for me. I had scholarships to secure, a life to carve out for myself, with or without this person. I deleted all the pictures we took together, the messages we sent, anything that still bound us together. And at first, it worked. Out of sight, out of mind. It worked because I had a lot more to keep myself preoccupied with. Once exams were over, I didn't have my usual coping mechanisms. A schedule filled with math and physics tutorials, reviewing flashcards on Anki, and being able to see my friends every other day. My sister wasn't coming back from uni until late December. So I was stuck with my thoughts and all these things I'd been hearing from other people about this boy. Things that destroyed the pedestal I'd once placed him on. Things that reminded me just how human he is capable of causing hurt, capable of making mistakes. And it seemed that the more I tried to expunge the memories I made with him, memories I'd shared equally with him, I relived them instead, and they started a blaze in my mind. I read in the book of Exodus that the presence of God came onto Mount Sinai like a consuming fire. The moments when I felt most in love were the moments when I felt closest to God. And now, that same consuming fire that I'd felt when those memories were first etched into my mind burnt me yet again. But in a different set of circumstances this time. During this time, I read a book called The Zahir by Paulo Coelho. The main character of the Zahir is a best-selling novelist who lives in Paris and enjoys all the privileges money and celebrity status can bring. His wife of 10 years, Esther, is a war correspondent who's just disappeared. The novelist searches for his wife and along the way he finds himself instead. As I was preparing for this episode, I scanned through the book to see the highlights I'd made. It would make for good content. 
see where my mind was at about a month ago. On the final blank page of the book, I wrote a note to myself, a note that I had since forgotten. It read, Maybe it's time to look into your own personal story and let go of it. After all, it is yours, and you are free to retype, copy, paste, and format this tale as you wish. The world is yours. Signed, Ayanda, on the 10th of December, 2020. It took me a while to embody the counsel I'd given myself after finishing the Zahir. It took me a while to realize that I was hurt, and even longer to admit, even to myself. I realized why my heart had felt so heavy the past few months. This kilogram of flesh, blood, and a highway of arteries and veins in my chest was now empty. I'd shed off all the love I'd stored in its chambers. I'm pretty sure my heart has stretch marks from all the time it took to grow larger in order to house that much love for one person. And now it was just a loose sack of cardiac muscle. As I was mourning this loss, I rejoiced at what I'd gained. A deeper appreciation for my friends. How much they look out for me, consider me, and protect me. A deeper appreciation for me who I am, and who I'm becoming. A deeper appreciation for God and the way that he moves. After three months of being apart, I finally spoke to him, recently, and our conversation was fruitful. I let go of everything that I was holding onto and found clarity on what was hazy. I realized just how different our values are, the way we view the world, our places in society, and how we portray ourselves. I was finally able to say everything with my chest and give myself the same grace and forgiveness I so easily give to others time and time again. I also recently learned that my phone didn't delete all the messages that I'd starred under my favorites, and I came across one that came from him. It read, You don't have to figure everything out all at once. Trust the timing of your life. Everything is working out in your favor. Just be present and take stress off your shoulders. You're blessed and protected. Don't forget to breathe and say thank you. I say this often because I believe it, despite how I may act from time and what my mind tries to convince me. But I believe that the world is rich with great love unfound and not yet woven. It is inside us, beside us, and around us. We have a lot of control when it comes to giving love, but nowhere near as much when it comes to receiving love. We are vessels, receptacles of love, and we should let it flow through us, from friends, family, and occasionally a significant other. And now I join in the wait, the wait for summer rain to come again.